Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Industrial parks, converted warehouses, and pole barns across the country, a fitness revolution is taking place. It's a revolution, according to J.C. Hertz, that's leading us not so much forward as back into what she calls the primal future of fitness. This future is one in which fitness connects us with the deep memories of our species when we roamed and hunted in packs when we made ritual sacrifices to the gods, when our ability to run or lift or jump was less a matter of being in shape and more a matter of survival. For Hertz, the future of fitness is rooted in our cultural and biological DNA. And the engine driving us into this future is CrossFit, a strength and conditioning program that began with one irascible genius tinkering around with a few athletes in a small gym in Southern California just after the turn of the century. Since then, CrossFit has grown into an international phenomena, with over 7,000 gyms worldwide and hundreds of thousands of athletes, from suburban moms to Marines, senior citizens to CEOs to sprightly teens. CrossFit attracts a huge variety of devotees, a variety that's all the more surprising given that each workout these athletes are asked to push themselves to their physical, neurological, and even spiritual limits. What accounts for this attraction, especially in our age of easy fixes and fitness fads? Hertz takes up this question in her book, Learning to Breathe Fire, The Rise of CrossFit and the Primal Future of Fitness. And... In her search for an answer, follows her subject from Santa Cruz to Fallujah, from the chemical reactions that cause muscle contractions to the decisions that determine the fate of companies such as Rogue and Reebok, hitting, ultimately, not on what it means to be fit, but what it means to live fully. JC Hertz, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, you've got this new book, Learning to Breathe Fire, The Rise of CrossFit and the Primal Future of Fitness. And I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, But it's a fascinating subject matter. And I'm wondering, before we dive into the book, if you'd be be willing to tell us a little bit about, you know, what brought you to this as a topic? Well, I had the experience that most people have, which is that someone in my life got into CrossFit and became very passionate about it and couldn't stop talking about it. And that person was my husband who, after he had a really serious back injury, ruptured a disc, not doing CrossFit, doing dumb 
personal training stuff boot camp at the Y. But he vowed that after they sliced off the bit of his disc that was impinging into his spinal cord, that he was going to make his core so strong that he would never experience that again. Because as he says, I know what 10 is on the pain scale. It's when you wish someone would take a brick and hit you over the head with it so you could not be in your misery anymore. So he started working on core strength and he found CrossFit that way and just he started getting kind of ripped and very passionate about CrossFit. So we talk about it all the time and he talk all the lingo and the, the gibberish about the wads and everything. And this was our dinnertime conversation. So I figured... I had to try it for the sake of our marriage because if I liked it, then I would enjoy the gibberish as well and it would bring us together as a couple. And even if I didn't, I'd get credit for trying it. So I went and I tried out. Of course, I had the same experience that everybody else has, which is you know, you, you, you do the introduction, you do the little introductory workout that doesn't involve any complex movements but makes you feel as though you're going to die. And then, you know, just thought to myself, oh, my God, this is this is so intense and it's so different because the, the whole tribal dynamic in the box is just so different from what you see in a gym. And there's something really interesting going on here. So I, I'm not a great athlete, but I was getting a lot out of it kind of psychologically and mentally, and I was building to my own potential. You know, I like to joke that I'm an excellent example of what you can do with zero genetic potential for sports. You know, but I I was being coached, and for a lot of people who haven't been on sports teams and weren't particularly athletic as kids, CrossFit is the first time that they've actually had a coach paying attention to what they do and helping them get better. And becoming sort of an athlete. And that was kind of funny. It resolved a lot of my high school angst. Um, so that was that was really, really great. So it's never too late to make the team. It's never too late to make the team. And I think that there's this, there's this sense, you know, when you hit middle age or even after that, that, you know, the athletes are the ones that are out there on the field or that's something you do when you're young. And it seems like an experience of... of CrossFit, well, let's call them that athletes, is that suddenly you begin to form this identity as an athlete. But I think that's, just, oh, go ahead, please. That's right. No, you do form an identity as an athlete. And it's funny because there's two kinds of people who love CrossFit. One is the ones who used to be an athlete, right? They used to play football in high school. Or they used to run track in high school. And it's like the Bruce Springsteen, the glory days, right? They thought that was gone forever. And they get exper that experience of going back and having practice and hanging out with their team. And they never thought that they would have that ever again in their lives. And it's, it's almost like a recaptured experience of that sort of golden youth. And then there's the people like me who were never on teams who experience what it's like to be on a team at, you know, it's age 40 or something. And that's really wonderful too, because you always thought of athletes as, you know, those people that, you know, they're hanging out with their people and I'm hanging out with my people. And, you know, we don't sit together in the cafeteria, but you're actually part of this gang that involves athletes. And it, it makes me laugh when I think about it. Uh, but there's a line in the book about, you know, CrossFit almost, it recapitulates the plot of the breakfast club with the twist, right? Cause in the end, all of the, you know, the princesses and the delinquents and the nerds and the freaks end up becoming athletes, but and, it's, it's really cool. And it seems that the, the common elixir that binds them all together is sweat and tears and laughter. Yeah. And, and 
the willingness to do something really difficult together. Well, let's circle back to your husband at the dinner table, because I think a lot of people will encounter this phenomenon of CrossFit either through some evangelical fervor mm-hmm. um, of, you know, they, somebody at the office suddenly pigeonholes them and says, you must try this. You, must try this. <laughs> right. you will be transformed as a result right. of doing this. My life will never be the same. Um, and then there's also CrossFit is one of those social phenomenon that get recycled in short articles over and over again right. with much less care and attention to detail than you give to it in your wonderful book. And so maybe a place to start would just be, what is it, right? What is it aside from the stories that you're going to read online that hype up one small aspect of it? And and what is it through the gibberish of the person at the water fountain that you're now going down the other hallway to avoid? So one of the themes in, in the book, and this is what makes it sort of good literary reading, is amidst all the science and the chronicles of these people who, you know, have these really crazy stories is this notion of what is sport. Because if you, if you think all the way back in time to you know, people coming up with sport, to, to go, it's not obvious that a group of primates should run onto a field, set rules, and gratuitously expend car- calories when food is scarce. Right? If, if you think about it, it's not obvious that that should happen. So why does sport exist? And what do we get out of it? What do we continue to get out of it? Because it's calorically expensive. And ultimately, it has to do with ritual. And it has to do with this primal experience of people getting together to sacrifice their energy. And the notion is, and it's a little bit akin to the case that Chris McDougall made in Born to Run, is that there are really deep and ancient reasons for these human capabilities. So with intensity, right, as opposed to endurance, the notion is that when we were hunter-gatherers and we wanted to sacrifice an animal to our gods so that we would have that animal again in the future, we were really sacrificing two things. We were sacrificing the animal and we were sacrificing the energy it took to hunt that animal because that took a lot of energy. And then when we became farmers, we still wanted to sacrifice an animal to our gods, but the animal was right there in the pen because it was domesticated but we still wanted to sacrifice the energy of the hunt. And this, in this transition from Paleolithic to Neolithic, this is when things like foot races become associated with religious festivals. There are all sorts of expenditures of energy that pop up in the context of sacrifice. And if you look at something like the Olympic Games, you have the foot race that begins at the end of the stadium and it ends at the steps up to the statue of Zeus and the winner gets the torch. And the thing that they're lighting isn't this ornamental you know, flame for everyone to see. That's actually the burnt offering. That's the animal that is going up to Zeus. And so there's this ritual that has to do with the sacrifice of human energy. And there's a professor at the University of Chicago whose thesis is that this ritual sacrifice of human energy is sport. It's what unites all the different kinds of sports. And once you're sacrificing energy, it could be anything. It could be a ball game. It could be mountain climbing. It could be fight, you know, boxing. It could be CrossFit. But what CrossFit does is it makes this ritual very intense and very social. And so at the end of the day, what people get together to do at CrossFit is sort of what cavemen got together to do in some way, shape, or form when sport emerges. It's the the genesis of sport. It's the DNA of sport. 
And so it's that primal experience that makes people feel like after they're done, wow, I really did something significant back there. Like there's something meaningful here and they can't articulate it because it's genetic memory. It's genetic memory of how sport came about. And you really feel emotionally as if the group of you actually has, you know, killed a bison or something. There's this notion, there's this feeling of triumph. It's not like I went to the gym, I did a good thing, I'm responsible, I checked the box. You feel like, you know, fist pumping triumph after you get done or just gratitude for survival. Um, but it's, it's a, deep, a deep emotion and it's a deep kind of binding experience. And that's what I thought was the most interesting in my research for the book was delving into that. I love that story. I think it's it's beautiful the idea of suddenly being involved in this intense intense athletic experience that somehow taps into a a deep anthropomorphic core. Um, and you see you see the look of that on people's faces when they finish. There's this kind of I've had some sort of experience. Um, let's let's look at it from just a, a different place for a moment. So I'm thinking of of the local gym on our campus where there's a big, huge line of ellipticals Mm -hmm. and each line of ellipticals has a television set on it. And then there are television sets above that. And I go in and I see all of these people lined up with their headphones in and a magazine next to the television set in front of the television set that's up above them. That seems about as far away as you can get from something like an expenditure of energy as a primal, expression of what it means to be human. Right. Um, and right. your book is, is so great because it not only gives us this portrait of, of this phenomenon of CrossFit and, and how it taps into kind of one aspect of, of you know, human nature, but you also give us the portrait of how this counter model comes about. And so right. the question becomes after this, this beautiful picture you've given us of what it could mean to engage in sport um, and how deeply it could be involved. Why is it for so many people that it's just, ah, I've got to go check off a box and get in my 30 minutes of cardio. Right. Yes, Hopefully something's good other, on the cooking channel. Yes, that's the other strand in the book is the history of what we come to understand about that fitness is, quote unquote, and the rise of the modern gym. And I call it the rise of the machines. Right. So how did we get to this place where people feel like fitness is, you know, that trudge to nowhere on the elliptical while reading a copy of Us magazine and watching TV with earbuds in? And the the, the modern gym has a really fascinating and really sordid history of business practices and the business model, which essentially relies for all its profit on the people who don't show up. So the business model of a a modern chain gym has to do with getting all these people to sign up because they they feel guilt, because they loathe themselves, or they want to feel like they're going to get better somehow by coming in January, right? There's the resolution. And then there's a, a few weeks where they have to kind of batten down the hatches when people actually come. But I think on February 7th, that's called the, the fitness cliff. That's where Gold's Gym has calculated is the single largest drop in gym attendance after which people do not come back. And from then on, financially for the gym, it's all gravy because you have a whole bunch of people paying these automatic monthly memberships, which they feel too guilty to cancel. 
but don't actually use the facility. And that's how the gym makes its money. And so if you go back into the history of how that model emerged, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it has a kind of genius, right? If you go into the details of the figures who created this business. It's a um, mammoth play. Oh, it absolutely is. And the people who, who, there was this gym called Vic Tanny's and it was run by, it literally was the Glenn Garrett, Glenn Ross of fitness, you know, just after World War II in Los Angeles. And this guy would write memos to his staff saying things like, if you don't sell any memberships today, pull a gun out of the drawer and just shoot yourself. I mean, it, it really was like that. And the funny thing is that Vic Tanney's, it, it changed ownership. And then it was that company was acquired. But ultimately, the, the corporation that Vic Tanney's rolled into is Bally's. And so in terms of its cultural DNA, Bally's goes all the way back to that company where if you sold more memberships than your boss, you replaced your boss. And if he sold more memberships than you the next day, he would kick you down the totem pole. Because corporate cultures don't really change, right? They, 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 they persist. So Bally's is Vic Tanny's. But no one knows that secret history of the modern gym. And, and I, it's kind of fascinating. I would say that, you know, if if that evangelical has put you off too much and you just don't want to read this book because you're turned off from CrossFit to read the rise of how we got to the present state of, of what the gyms around us in every parking lot look like. Um, the book is worth the read, but it, it, it will also be a great argument for why you should be doing something that's a little more functional and a little more intense. Um, so, so just to underscore what you said that the modern workout facility is based on the premise that you won't work out. Uh, and then you also have this this wonderful chapter about a, a guy named Dudley Allen Sargent. Right. Um, why right. is it that there are those ellipticals and those Nautilus machines in our gyms rather than barbells and uh, kettlebells and things like that? So there was this guy in the 19th century named Dudley Allen Sargent. He was like the champion of functional fitness. Like the guy who invented CrossFit, Greg Glassman, he was like the 19th century Greg Glassman, and he was a gymnast, and he was encouraging everyone to do gymnastics and all this functional movement and rowing, and I mean, all it was CrossFit in in the Victorian era. And he got appointed the the lead director of the new Hemingway Gymnasium at Harvard, which was the largest gymnasium that had ever been constructed. It was deluxe, of course, and he had this salary and. The, the big problem that he had was that the, the real athletes, right, would come in and they would do their gymnastics, but they were these sort of really competitive, elite, hardcore alphas, and they would intimidate all of the smaller, weaker athletes or even non-athletes who he couldn't even get in the door, right? So he thought, well, here's my real problem is that the weaklings um, who represent a decline in, in American manhood – won't even come here. So how do I get them in the door? And he came up with these machines that we call developing apparatus, which were pulley cable machines, really, you know, the, the progenitors of the modern Cybex machines. 
And he had all the people who weren't athletes come there. And the notion was that you would get strong enough on the developing apparatus to go and do gymnastics, which is the thing you should really be doing. And gymnastics was very broadly defined. It in, involved Indian clubs and dumbbells. It, it was basically cross-training with functional movement. But the problem was that these elite athletes in the middle of the gym were so hardcore that uh, the people who weren't good athletes kind of stayed around the edges on the developing apparatus and in in fact preferred the developing apparatus to the prospect of you know entering that functional fitness area and then some of his colleagues who were reinventing the YMCA at the time they thought the developing apparatus were great because you didn't need a coach to you know train people how to do anything on the developing apparatus you could just put them on the floor and people would come and use the pulleys and it was much cheaper so the irony is that this man who championed functional movement and cross-training and gymnastics ended up inventing the machines that became the, the floor of muscle isolation machines that we now recognize as the modern gym. And he never intended to have that substitute for coaching and training and requiring skills but it happened because of the economics. So we got to this kind of junk fitness, right? We went for coaching and training and something that you know, took a lot of labor and was more expensive and more high quality to something that was cheap and commodity and suited this industrial business model that made a lot of money but didn't provide a very high quality product. And, and so in that way, it's almost like the rise of industrial food, right? You have industrial food coming online, and then you have an industrial fitness in a way parallel, so that we have this junk food now, and we have this junk fitness now. And, and both of which are, you know, very affordable, but they don't really do much for you. And there's a lot of science in the book that explains really on a, a, a biochemical level, What's going on when you're on the elliptical in your body biochemically versus when you're doing high intensity intervals? And it's very, very different. It's very different. And that would be something I'd want to stress for listeners. I mean, on the one hand, you're doing these wonderful social histories. And on the other hand, the readers of this book will get to learn what actually happens when you contract a muscle. Uh, what kinds of muscle fibers are actually at play when that turns out? You know, what kinds of nutrients are going into building that muscle? So it goes from from our very kind of DNA all the way to the long histories that constitute why we do what we do. There's a wonderful range in the book. Right, or, or what's going on in the brain, right? Because one of the interesting things about these complex movements is that they wire your brain together when you're when you actually learn how to coordinate your body and when you require balance, right? So on a muscle isolation machine, you're kind of on a, on a, on a rail, right? So the thing only kind of goes up one way and down one way. So you never really have to control or stabilize your body very much. When you have to get a heavy thing up off the ground, there's all of these muscles that come into play and there's body control that comes into play. And the ability to coordinate that is a brain capability as much as it is a, a strength capability. So it doesn't really happen in the meat. It happens 
in, in the skull. And that's some of the other fascinating stuff is the brain body connection that's necessary to do something like a squat versus do something like, you know, a, a dumbbell curl, uh, and, and the evolution of that, because in, in the motor cortex in the brain, there are sort of three, there are three places that handle, um, progressively more complicated movements, right? There's what the primary motor cortex, which is just little simple movements. I want to move my finger, the secondary motor cortex, which is, you know, I'm going to go and reach for an object that's near me. And then there's the tertiary motor cortex, which only comes into play during these complicated movements that involve your whole body. And if you look in animals, so when that predator leaps up to, you know, snap the neck of its prey, that's a complex full body movement. And the will to do that, the intention to do that, and the actual motor control to do that live in exactly the same place. So the same place in your body that controls those complicated movements is also responsible for formulating the intention to actually execute that. So it's the part of your brain that sets an intention, formulates a goal. And of course, we're human beings, so we've evolved beyond you know what these parts of our brains were originally used for. But when someone says, well, you know, I started doing CrossFit or, you know, any kind of functional training, it could be martial arts, uh, it could be dance. And I, I found that it was easier to just kind of get myself together and get my life together. They're actually articulating a physiological process, the part of their brain that formulates intention, the, the human will actually lives in the part of the brain that orchestrates complex full body movements. And I think it's called, what is it? The attention association area is yes, what you're talking about? Yes, the attention association area. Right. And, and right. you end that uh, chapter, if I remember correctly, talking about then what happens if you just get on something that keeps you on track, that does it for you? If you're on the elliptical, if you're on the glider, then you're literally not activating that area and you're giving up the chance to activate your willpower. Right. I mean, in some ways, you know, the converse, right, to we build willpower by executing these complex movements is that, you know, we're, we're we may be sort of lobotomizing ourselves with the machines that are meant to make us fit because we're, we're abrogating neural control and we're abrogating the, the buildup of the neural circuits that make, make it possible to, you know, go and do these things. On a practical level, um, if, you, if you're used to just pulling up and down on a rail and you actually do need to get a heavy object up above your head, you're out of luck because the physics of that you dictate that you really need to keep that heavy thing very close to the center line of your body and, you know, orchestrate, you know, large and small muscles and, you know, the overhead press machine is just not going to help you with that. And people think that it doesn't matter. They don't view themselves as, oh, I never have to do this. But when you take a small suitcase filled with books and you need to put it in the overhead luggage compartment, the movement is identical to an Olympic lift called the clean and jerk. And it's one of the more common rotator cuff 
injuries is people who are putting that suitcase full of reading materials in the overhead luggage compartment and they don't have enough shoulder stability and they're not using their legs to get it up and they end up messing up their shoulders. So this stuff really does have a very kind of practical and tactical um, element to it as well. Well, in the most basic sense, functional fitness is to allow you to function in your everyday life. Right. And, and people say, you know, coaches, I was just talking to a coach, he says, well, people say, well, I don't need to, you know, do squats. And he said, well, you got to do them every day when you go to the bathroom. because <laughs> That's how you get on a toilet. When you pick up your groceries, when you get out of bed, when you have to get the pot from the bottom cupboard. Oh, yeah. And, and people look at the CrossFit Games and these demigods who compete on an elite level. And what they don't realize is that for most people, you know, this even has to do with functional independence, right? This has to do with, okay, I'm 60 years old. Do I need to ask someone to help me put that five gallon bottle of water on the cooler? Or can I do it myself? Do I need to ask someone to help me get that bag of dog food from my car to the door? Or can I do it myself? Things like lunges, you know, one of the more common injuries of elderly people is that they kind of trip a little bit on the threshold between the the kitchen and the kitchen and the living room and they take a tumble and that's when they break something. And if you practice doing lunges, that's far less likely to happen. So there there's very unglamorous and practical real world advantages and I think almost more for people who are not in the prime of their lives than for, you know, the 20-somethings who have great metabolisms and a lot of muscle mass. And the fact is, if you have low muscle mass and low bone density, those are the people who need functional fitness the most, not some, you know, guy who was playing rugby 10 years ago. Well, Okay, so so let's circle back. We've got this this model that everybody knows about that that the gym down the street, wherever you are in America, embodies. And it's kind of ironically given to us by Dudley Sargent and viciously given to us by Vic Tanny. And uh, and then uh, just before the turn of the century, along comes Greg Glassman. Right. So, so Greg Glassman is a really interesting character uh, himself. He's sort of a, a force of nature. He's sort of a prickly personality. He's brilliant. And he, he pulls together these strands of different things that people were doing. And, and no single element of CrossFit is new. It's, it's just the way that they're combined, right? So the whole notion of alternating these movements and then composing a, a workout and giving it a woman's name, right? And getting people from around the world to post their results to the internet, internet right? So it's the synthesis of things that makes CrossFit kind of unique and, and, and different and interesting because people have been doing cross training for a long time and people obviously have been doing Olympic weight, Olympic weight lifts and they've obviously been doing gymnastics, but it's this really interesting way of combining it and sort of formalizing it. And my argument is ritualizing it because these things hadn't necessarily been ritualized before, but because they named the workouts and because this is done as a group it's, it, it all gets very ritualistic. And the thing about ritual is the more intense a ritual is, the more ritualistic it becomes. And the more ritualistic something is, the more intense it gets. It's kind of a vicious 
or virtuous cycle. And so what you have in CrossFit is this unique sense of ritual. And, and part of the, the narrative of the book is just understanding how important ritual actually is to us and what happens when we restore ritual to our lives and then what happens when, when ritual is leached out because arguably the, the rise of the modern gym has to do with the, the de-ritualization of sport, right? So you take out the intensity, you take the ritual out and ritual becomes habit and sport becomes exercise. And so when you restore the intensity and you restore the ritual, you get back to sport. And I think that's, that's the, the kind of 360 uh, that, that people, people travel and you see these packs and tribes of CrossFitters. And, and that's the other thing is that, you know, each CrossFit box is its own little tribe. And, you know, people see each other. They're familiar with each other. You know, it, the smaller CrossFit gyms have this kind of cheers factor. You know, people walk in and, you know, everybody knows your name. They also know your personal record for back squat. Um, they have socials and, and their kids play together. And they help each other. And and in terms of physical stuff, they're kind of uniquely able to help each other. So someone will say on Facebook, hey, I'm moving this weekend. You know, who will help me? And a couple of people will come with trucks. And, you know, to them, it's just another workout. You know, move the boxes. And someone told me he's, he has more confidence in his CrossFit gym than his church when it comes to actually, you know, helping out with things like moving. He says the CrossFitters will show up. And they'll actually lift the boxes and they won't hurt themselves. And the ladies at church, I'm not so sure. Um, but it's, it's sort of filling, it fills a vacuum, right? We, we, we really want and need these kinds of tribal community bonds. And I think because of the way we live and the fact that we drive to every place and just how scattered we are, a lot of that has fallen away as well. And so, you know, if you if you look at, you know, what Niall Ferguson says about, you know, the, the great dissolution of social institutions and, you know, bowling alone, right? I would say it's bowling yes. alone at Bally's. But I find a glimmer of hope in things like CrossFit because you do have the, the this formation of social capital in CrossFit boxes that's that's very, very positive and, and, and valuable. So, you know, the people have, they have fundraisers, they, they do all of the, a lot of the kinds of things that we used to associate with churches. You know, they, they, they do things in their communities to, to help and they, they feel, makes them feel good. And I think that that's an enormously positive thing. And, you know, it sort of gives us hope that, you know, we are, we haven't been completely atomized into a consumer society. I, I would add that I think one of the things that your account of ritual in this sport does is it provides a nice counter narrative to one you see flare up so often, which is CrossFit as cultish, right? Which is kind of just a negative spin on the idea of ritual as opposed to ritual being essential to human life. Right. Yeah. Ritual is essential to a happy human life. And, and, I think when people say, well, CrossFit's a cult, I think it's just they're reacting to the level of passion that people have about it. They just can't relate to it because there aren't other consumer phenomena that really have that quality, right? Like you're not going to 
go and become that passionate about whatever beverage you're drinking or shoe you're wearing. Cause that's, it's not a, it's not really consumer thing. It has to do with the value of the social bonds and the, the rituals. And it's not a cult in the sense of, you know, there's, there's no creepy leader. It's not a, a cult of personality. It's not a, you know, a exploitative and, you know, like all of the, you know, you check the box down, you know, is, is it a cult? But it, it does have a very heavy element of ritual and it is sort of cultic in the sense that the Olympic games were right. Is that there's a kind of a deeper significance to everything you see going on. I mean, you look through the window and people are tossing up medicine balls, you know, nine feet in the air. You think, Oh, well that's just insanity. But what those people are really doing is testing how much will they have to carry on when something just sucks. Right. And embrace the suck. Well, embrace or just the ability to endure discomfort or, you know, sacrifice your comfort and find your courage and there, there's a kind of a metaphysical or even a moral quality to a lot of this stuff because your ability to get better, yeah, you have to learn technique. You, your muscles do have to get stronger. But a lot of times the difference between the people who just kind of improve moderately and the people who get to be amazing doesn't necessarily have to do with their athletic ability. It has to do with their character. It has to do with their ability to just push themselves through. And for, for a lot of people, you know, this is something you you learn how to do when you're in the Marines, right? But if you're not a special forces, you're not a Marines, you're not a firefighter. You know, if you're Joanne from human resources and you find within yourself the ability to, you know, push through and get it done and know that you can do this alongside your brothers and sisters, it does change you. It, it sort of spills over into other areas of your life. And there's a, a very heavy theme in the book about women and and f- women becoming f- athletes and female athletes finding that it's all right to kind of own their competitiveness and, and own the expression of physical power and, you know, lift heavy things over their heads. And it, that almost can't not spill over into other areas of your life. And I mean, I've experienced this myself, you know, women love to say, well, I love to collaborate. I'm a team player. It's great. But you know what? Sometimes you just have to want to win, right? You have to want to just go for it and not cross the finish line at the same time as everybody else, (laughs) but actually cross the finish line first. And there's an expression in football. You've got to want the ball. And for women to feel like it's okay, it's okay to feel that. It's it's okay to own that. You don't have to constantly deny that you have a little bit of competitiveness in, in you because it's, you know, it's so dangerous. I mean, women are so slow to even, you know, admit to themselves that, you know what, they like to win. And, and I think that that's a, a really deep kind of psychological balm when someone who has always, you know, said, oh, you know, I just, I want to support everyone can finally admit to herself that, you know what, I actually kind of am a type A competitive personality and I'm okay with that. And here's a place where I can express that in a friendly way 
and, you know, cheer on the people that I'm competing against while wanting to get that number one spot on the whiteboard. And that somehow just admitting that it, it makes it, it makes it less awkward. I think a lot of women walk through life. They really have this little competitive fire within themselves, but they try to hide it. And that leads to all sorts of weird passive aggression and all kinds of stuff. But when you can finally own it, like you can breathe and, and it's okay. And so you don't, not hiding it, um, makes your life easier because you can be more friendly about your competitiveness and you can lose better too, right? Cause you're not pretending that you, it didn't really matter to you anyway. It did matter. It mattered to the point that, you know, it reduced you to triers in the attainment of it. Well, um, and I, I think, you know, people get together and they, um, you know, they talk about how unfair everything is. Uh, you know, and I'm part of, I'm, you know, I work in technology and, you know, women in tech and women getting investment from venture capitalists and all this other. There's a whole bunch of these little, you know, online sessions talking about how unfair it is. And, you know, be that as it may, I think that a lot of women are, are they're just afraid to put themselves out there and actually be competitive or, or, you know, be a little bit aggressive because they're afraid they'll be condemned for it. And, you know, maybe they're right, right? Maybe there, there's a good foundation in that, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to come out, throw your arms around the people that you're working with and say, you know what, we're going to win this one. And, and just, just own that. And it, it clears the air. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal, the transformative effect that it has on a woman to be able to deadlift her own body weight or pull herself up, right? Literally to do a pull-up. Most women come into a CrossFit box, they can't do a pull-up. Um, and then when you, you can physically pull yourself up, well, that's great. You know, you've built some strength, you've got, you know, upper body, you've got all this stuff. But being able to pull yourself up, it, it echoes in other ways, and, and that's, that's one of the things that, you know, as I sort of trace the story of some of these women and some of whom used to be, you know, one of them was an Olympic athlete, but one of them was a lady who was 200 pounds after having her second kid and she couldn't even get the stroller into the trunk of the car and was just in a really bad place. And she kind of re she found herself, she kind of dis- rediscovered the person that she had been when she was, you know, 22 and could live more joyfully because she had built the strength within herself physically, but also psychologically. You know, and that, that's, that's what makes this whole phenomenon really interesting to read about, but it's also what freaks people out about it, right? Because it's not, it's not just, um, you know, better abs or, you know, a better butt. I think people are very, very comfortable with the idea of, well, I can go and I can compartmentalize myself and I can put in this work and then I'll have, you know, better abs, you know, in this kind of clinical way. But at the end of the day, you know, anything you do that's worth doing, certainly in the physical realm, it's going to require, it's going to ask more of you and not just physically. And, and one of the themes is that this, that intensity itself has a value being able to give something, give it everything, 
and there's no real line right between mind, body, and soul in inside of someone who is giving it everything. You can talk about that as a spectator, but you know when that gymnast is going for that vault, right, in, in gymnastics, or when you know a weightlifter is going for a one rep max, it's it's all of them that's going for that one rep max. It's not just their body. You give us a portrait of an athlete uh, and serviceman named Greg Edmondson, and yes. uh, and his take on. CrossFit is very much one where it's it's cultivating virtues. It's um, almost classically Greek in its notion. I mean, it's spiritual. Yeah, no, it is spiritual, and and it's funny because I think CrossFitters are are kind of the modern Stoics in some ways. You know, it has to do with building resilience and being able to forge ahead in adversity, and the fact that adversity, you know. It's a, it's a blessing because it builds you, it builds strength. And yeah, it, it, it has to do with these sort of concept of virtue, which is totally archaic, right? This is not, this is not a modern worldview at all. Like th- this is something that people have kind of cobbled together from the sort of chivalric code, their faith, and, you know, the 300, it, you know, it, it has to do with this hunger for this almost like Jungian hero's journey um, that, that people kind of want to be on, right? Because there are people and you know, a lot of the early adopters of CrossFit were, they were, they were warriors. They were, you know, special forces guys. They were SWAT team guys like Greg Amundsen, um, you know, firefighters, Marine. Marines love CrossFit, right? Because it has to do with this kind of, there's a strand of it that's about this sort of warrior ethos, but the interesting part about that is that so much of modern media and social media has to do with being clever, right? Having that kind of ironic distance. And I'm Generation X, right? So I, my generation is a master of this. But CrossFit is one of the few places where it's okay to be absolutely earnest, right? People poke fun at themselves, right? They, they poke, they're humorous about it. But, you know, while they're in that moment of, I'm not sure I can get myself to the end of this, there's no irony. You know, they are just purely who they are, you know, striving for some goal. And it does have this kind of archaic heroism. And there are accounts in the book of, of the CrossFit Games, which are these, you know, kind of ritual gauntlets that went from on someone's ranch in 2008 to now on ESPN, right, this summer in July. So it's, it's grown, but it still has to do with this, this, this kind of, you know, ritual spectacle of the fittest on earth, right, vying for dominance. And it's funny because it got me in touch with some of my old classics professors from college. And, you know, because it does have this sort of mythic, overtone to it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, barbells at the gates of Troy, you know, what these people do and the tone in which it's done. And it's, it's really, it's really fantastic to actually live these, you know, heroic present tense moments of crisis, you know, blood and dust and in sports writing, 
because that's what, it's fun to read and it's fun to write. Um, you know, it's certainly more fun than, you know, writing about, you know, putting one foot in front of the other for 40 miles or, you know, endurance sports. I have to say, I, I, endurance sports are just hard to write about. They're hard to write dramatic sagas about. Um, there's certain sports that are just hard. Golf is really hard to, to write, you know, dramatic sagas about, but CrossFit is great. If you want to be like a bard or to write dramatic sagas, because there's a lot of inherent drama in, in, in people having to push, lift or throw themselves and very heavy things around, especially when they're not quite sure either what they're going to be expected to do before they do it, or they're not sure they can do it. There's something, well, to come full circle back to Mamet, he was the one that, that kind of said the, the ultimate dramatic moment is not the one where somebody triumphs, but the one where somebody is pushed to breaking and somehow succeeds. Uh, yes. You want to see that person in the mud with the blood and yet somehow cross the finish line. And that's the real story. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And one of these patterns that comes up in the narrative is that the people who succeed, um, most of them have this moment of failure as well, right? So, you know, Rich Froning, the, the CrossFit Games champion, fittest man on earth, he had this really humiliating defeat um, before he won. He, you know, fell off a rope. He didn't know how to climb a rope fell off the rope and he kind of landed on his ass and hit his head on the chalk bucket. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was an epic fail. Um, and then, you know, a lot of these people who are like gods, they have these failures and then they, they, they come back and it's how they deal with those failures that makes them heroic. And even Greg Amundsen has his own kind of really interesting evolution because he was, you know, the super cop. He was, you know, super fit. You know, he was the man. He was, you know, working for DEA, taking down Mexican drug cartels. And then he started this CrossFit gym in California. And it was huge. It was like an airplane hangar. And, you know, he was doing everything. He was the sort of ultimate, you know, tough alpha. And then his marriage fell apart. And he tells the story in a book called Your Wife is Not Your Sister. And it really forced him to confront that fact that all of these things that he'd been doing to be this ultimate dominant alpha were sort of exactly the wrong way to go if what he really wanted to, to cultivate is this kind of purity, right? Because the bigger you get and the tougher you get, the more renowned you get, the harder it is to maintain those virtues, which is what drew him to CrossFit in the first place, that and being able to be, you know, a really good cop. And so he opens this little CrossFit gym in Santa Cruz, like, you know, three doors, you know, little ways away from the original gym. And he makes it tiny by intention. And he takes the first hundred people who come and sign up, even though he could, he could just run, have run a gym for elite competitors who would have flocked to him. He could have just taken, you know, the toughest dominant alphas, but he took basically anyone who wandered in and he runs this little gym and he really invests in the improvement of 
the people who go there and the community. And he has something called the Epic Fitness Van, like on Tuesdays or something. They get in it and they go somewhere and they do something like a road trip, like they'll go paddle boarding or they'll go for a hike or go running on the beach. And it's kind of like a family. And, you know, to see people go through that where they realize the thing that they're striving for may also be the thing that's holding them back. That's, that's, it goes to the thing that's really interesting about these stories and what gives them a resonance that's beyond, you know, these sort of athletic chronicles of virtuosity. I'm glad you got us both to the games and to, to his new box. Um, And if we had the time and I really wish we do, uh, or we did, the book, I need to, to make sure listeners know, also tells the story of, of the rise of CrossFit as a corporation and right. the different kind of corporation, uh, the different corporate model that it embodies. And, you know, it's it's kind of happy marriage with corporations like Reebok and Rogue and how it's transforming business culture as well. So there's a whole big public story uh, that you interweave with the story of individuals as you move through the different chapters of the book. Um, but as we are starting to, to approach the end of the time we have together, I'll have to ask you, you know, now that you've gone back to the primal fitness, the primal future of fitness, where are you heading next uh, in your work? So right now I'm actually having a blast on Learning to Breathe Fire's Facebook page because it's got 3,700 of some of the most amazing, passionate, CrossFitters that I've ever met. And it's sort of a mixture of, you know, great coaches, guys who are military, often deployed overseas, and these incredibly kick-ass women who, you know, I, I would not want to mess with. Um, and so they're we, basically just posting up some like sort of interesting stories and, you know, events. And I'm, I'm a traveling troubadour myself going from, you know, box to box and people welcome me and they have, you know, bring books and I sign them and, uh, you know, I do a lot, you know, it's, so I'm, I'm kind of enjoying the community right now, but we're having, having a, a blast on Facebook. And then I'm going to be out in San Francisco in the middle of July doing an event at CrossFit Amundsen. And then going to San Diego and going to L.A. for the game. So if there are any CrossFitters out in those areas, uh, message me on Facebook. And I'm, I'm sure we can arrange to uh, work out together or bump into each other. And I, I should point out that there is something like a minor meme taking place with the cover of your book. <laughs> That's right. So the, the cover is, you know, a guy who is actually in a CrossFit competition. But he has, had an Atlas stone on his shoulder, so a little bit Atlas shrugged um, but people are putting medicine balls on their on their backs and taking pictures of themselves, you know, uh, in the cover pose. Um, and at the games, we're actually going to have a giant, like a five foot tall version of the cover, but without the central figure on it that you can sort of take a picture of yourself with a medicine ball. And so you can be on the cover of, of the book. But, you know, people love doing or they take pictures of the books in these extreme of the book in these extreme environments where they go like, you know, the Leadville heavy all endurance race, or, you know, they put the book on the hillside or in on Coronet, Coronado beach. Well, it's probably with the phone ringing, that's probably yeah. a good place to bring it to a close, but uh, it's worth noting that there's a lot of good spirited fun in the book that's getting picked up on the Facebook page. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of humor um, and, you know, quizzes uh, that make fun of CrossFit by CrossFitters. Well, J.C. Hurts, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. 
All right. It's a pleasure to be here anytime. This is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to J.C. Hertz, author of Learning to Breathe Fire, The Rise of CrossFit and the Primal Future of Fitness on the New Books Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.